Hey guys, what's going on? It's Jeff. A quick note before the show begins. The audio from these podcasts mostly come from live video YouTube streams on my channel. They may vary in quality from show to show and reference visual content not described to you, the listener. I'm sorry about that. If you prefer video to go with this audio, head over to youtube.com backslash from us, F-R-U-M-E-S-S for the whole enchilada. Who doesn't like a whole enchilada anyway? Hello and welcome back to another chapter of From Us Peace Theater. Is that what I'm calling? <laughs> Whoa, totally botched that one. Welcome back to another edition of From Us Peace Theater. We are reading the time-held classic Return of the Living Dead, the novelization, now a major film, the novelization written by John Russo of all people. And we're on chapter eight where we last left off. Where did we last leave off? Um, we last left off with Colonel Grover or Glover, as he's known in the movie Grover in the in the book, um, who is just needlessly shoehorned into the story, probably because he's in the script that John Russo is writing from. Well, as we know, John Russo has decided to inject his own elements like a whole communist uh, subplot. Um, yeah. So anyway, chapter eight. It was pitch black outside, except for the occasional stabs of forked lighting from the impending storm. Legs and meat were sitting by a tombstone, polishing off a bottle of cheap wine that the gang had earlier been passing around. Legs said rather famously, I might add, do you ever fantasize about being killed? Meat turned towards her, noticing how, in a flash of lightning, her blue hair and blue regalia looked ghostly and unreal. Being killed, he said. No, I don't found fantasize about it. I ain't the sort of that it ain't the sort of thing I get off on. It didn't matter what he had said. Legs went on talking in her spaced out, awestruck way as if they were on the same wavelength. Did you ever wonder about all the different ways of dying, you know, violently, and wonder, like, what would be the most horrible way to die? I'd like to fuck myself to death, Meat said. <laughs> Leering into darkness. Does that mean masturbating? <laughs> masturbating to death? How about it, babe? Want to get me started? Meat. Be serious, she shrieked. Can't you ever settle down and have a plutonic philosophical discussion? Playing along with her, Meat said, I'd hate to burn to death. It must hurt like a bastard. Warming to the subject, legs purred. Mm-hmm. All your flesh blackening and curling away from your bones. Like when you toss pieces of cardboard into the fire. Not only would it feel bad, it would look bad. Remember how Freddy used to say? Live fast, die young, and make a good-looking corpse. Yeah, that was before he had found Tina. That's before him and Tina had found sunshine. Yeah, said Legs. Those two haven't been the same since. Like, I can understand feeling bad when a friend dies. I felt bad about sunshine, too. We all did. But Freddie and Tina, they made, like, a really heavy trip out of it. Know what I mean? Like... They let it bum them out entirely too much, if you ask me. Boy, John Russo knows how to write for the teenagers, huh? It's different for them, said Meat. 
They saw Sunshine dead. We didn't. It's funny, said Legs. We used to tell Sunshine he was such a screw-up. He even managed to screw up his own funeral, and he did just that. He lived fast and died young, but I guess he didn't make a very good-looking corpse. Meat remembered entering the funeral parlor. <laughs> Meat remembered entering the funeral parlor and saying a prayer over Sunshine's closed casket. Not being able to be, view his friend in death made it hard to believe that death had truly occurred. When he had pictured the person in the closed coffin, his mental image was close to how Sunshine had looked in life. Blonde, cocky, slightly emaciated, but with perfect white teeth and a superb smile that had given him his nickname. Yet Meat knew that Sunshine didn't look that way anymore. He was probably decked out in a conservative suit and tie instead of greasy jeans and motorcycle boots and Hare Krishna beads. And his skin was probably still all festered and puffy and green like Freddie and Tina had said. If Meat still believed in his parents' old-fashioned Bible pounding, shrieking and groaning, him shouting, uh, that's not a fun word to say, N-E-G-R-O, Baptist religion, he could have been com comforted by the thought of sunshine arising on Judgment Day, his body made whole and beautiful to frolic in eternal bliss in the presence of God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. But Meat was an agnostic, and it was one of the things that had gotten him thrown out of his parents' house. He could no longer talk talk to God with any confidence that anyone up there was listening. So the prayer he said for Sunshine's Corpse was one that he made up, not out of any prayer book. I think that's a beautiful man, and there's nothing wrong with doing that. Pronouncing his deep personal wish that Sunshine would receive the best of whatever there was to enjoy or to receive after earthly life, if there was anything, and that his survivors and loved ones would remember him well and not judge him too harshly and not suffer too much in their grief. That's a, I think that's a fantastic prayer, frankly. As Meat turned away from the coffin after silently expressing these sentiments, he was attacked by Sunshine's mother, a frail, red-eyed, surprisingly strong little woman who flailed at him, screaming and striking his face and body with her bony fists, accusing him of being the no good. Oh, geez. I don't remember that word. The no good N word dope fiend who had corrupted her son and brought him to an early grave. That's right. There's an N bomb in here. Wow. The other white folks in the funeral parlor weren't in any big hurry to subdue sunshine's old lady and calm her down. Meat's face was bleeding from being clawed, and he was pretty shook up when he pushed his way out to the street. Recalling it, so there's some interesting backstory here. Recalling it as he sat with legs leaning against a tombstone, he swigged down the last of the line and asked her, you think any of us are in any way to blame for what happened to Sunshine? No way, legs snapped. No, grit, no guilt trips for me, buster. I mean, said Meat, maybe we could have tried a lot harder to get him off the hard stuff. We did try, but he would not listen. If you ask me, he had a self-destructive personality, Legs giggled. <laughs> I guess we all do, the whole gang of us. But Sunshine was a lot worse. He was a lot further gone than the rest of us. I don't know. Maybe he got what he wanted. Maybe he's happier now, you know? Happier, said Meat. Like, if there's a heaven. Oh, you don't believe in it? 
I'm not sure. Well, anyway, said Legs, an OD would be such a terrible way to go. Sorry, an OD wouldn't be such a terrible way to go, all blissed out. You'd be gone before you even realized you were tripping away. For me, the worst death would be for a bunch of horrible men like cannibals to mob me and start eating me alive. I saw that in a movie once. So did I, said Neat, recalling how the scary movie had been. He shuddered, glad of the darkness, so that legs couldn't see him being uncool. First, the cannibals would tear off my clothes, legs said. She giggled playfully. Meat heard her squirming around. Then, in a flash of lightning, he saw that she was unbuttoning her blouse. Hey, suicide, he yelled. Let's get some light over here. Legs is taking off her clothes again. Giggling from somewhere deep in the cemetery, Suicide lit a highway flare. And like an altar boy holding a sparkling candle, he had he led a per- procession comprised of Chuck, Casey, Scuzz, and Tina over to where Legs was doing her spontaneous striptease. In darkness you will find me. I'll dance among the dead. Uh, he jacked. <laughs> He jabbed the wire prong of the flare into the ground at the foot of the tombstone and the sputtering orange light illuminated Legs' well-sculpted torso naked in the darkness to the beat of some wild electronic music coming from Scuzz's ghetto blaster. She began to do a slow, seductive dance. Take it off, babe. Take it all off, suicide drooled. He jumped around, clapping his hands, the pointy metal studs of his dog collar glinting in the shimmering orange flare light. Following his lead, the whole gang started to clap to the beat, except for Tina, who hung back, eyeing the warehouse across the way and wishing that Freddy would come out. Getting carried away by her lap dance, her dance, I don't know why I said lap dance, and by being the center of attention, Legs leapt to the top of the tombstone, balancing herself on its wide, scalloped edge. Undulating slowly, she caressed her uptuned breasts, leaning back, massaging and squeezing till her large nipples hardened and jutted. Then she unzipped her her blue plastic shorts. Yeah, 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 yelled Suicide. Get down, get down, babe, said Meat. Legs peeled off her plastic shorts and tossed them into the darkness, nude except for her plastic boots. Oh, my, this is making me hot and bothered. I'm, I've got the vapors. Nude except for her plastic boots and her blue leg warmers, she spread her long, slim, beautiful legs and began to arch her pelvis and shimmy her hips slowly and deliberately as if she was having sex impaled by some invisible presence whoa oh wow said suicide is this how you is this how she gives it to you scuzz what do you think said scuzz wanting suicide to envy him man man let me have a turn with her suicide pleaded get out she ain't that kind of girl said scuzz the thrusts of legs pelvis were coming faster and harder and she was losing and she was losing the beat of the music her eyes had a glazed look and she was biting her lip and moaning continuing her frantic undulations on top of the tombstone tina couldn't watch it was embarrassing legs was actually reaching an orgasm all by herself right in front of everybody 
in the sputtered orange glare, the whole scene was unbelievably bizarre and unreal and, and well, sacrilegious. Legs really was defiling a cemetery. It almost seemed like she was copulating with the spirit of the dead, an evil, lustful spirit that must have arisen from beneath the tombstone she was dancing on. Even though Tina thought she had completely shed the rigid religious tenets of her childhood, the concept of sin was heavily ingrained in her subconscious. Denying this, she told herself that she wasn't square any longer. There was just certain kinds of behavior that she couldn't go get on with. It wasn't square to be turned off by pointless disrespect and mockery of other people's beliefs. What Legs was doing fell into the category Tina felt, and she had an atavistic, never heard that word before, sense that Legs would be or ought to be punished for it. Ooh. Tina had been raised a strict Roman Catholic in an Italian-American family, uh, Per- parochial school, not familiar with that, and a, and the whole bit, including a great deal of pressure from the nuns when she was a senior in high school to make a decision to enter a convent. But then, as her parents would say, she had fallen in with the wrong crowd. What really had happened, in her own opinion, was that she had started to think. She had bought a paperback of Mark Twain's Letters from the Earth, and the single irre- irreverent humorous, satirical, and iconoclastic book had pierced the dogma of her upbringing with a crack of light and fresh air. But when she tried to express some of her new questions and feelings, the nuns and priests were outraged and told her parents that she was in danger of becoming a heathen on the road to hell. Tina's mother and father promptly clamped down on her to force her to be the good, obedient little girl that they had thought they were raising. Because she had a streak of spunk and rambunctiousness, the fierce effort to suppress her only led her to a more determined and at times a more foolhardy rebellion. She stopped reading and studying and started running around. The intellectual quest that had started the trouble was abandoned and largely forgotten, trampled in the climate of passion and confrontation. Tina became a street brat, defying her parents' conservatism by a pursuit of his diametric opposite, unbridled hedonism. She had been born with a good mind that could have been developed with enlightened guidance and stimulation. Instead, although she possessed a capacity for subtle perceptions and delicate refined emotions, that capacity was dulled and blunted by the frantically superficial lifestyle she had fallen into. Finding Sunshine dead had been enough of a jolt to make her question at long last how and why she was wasting herself, but she wasn't strong enough to break away completely, and maybe she never would be. The nearest object of any hint or plausibility of strength was Freddie Travis. Along with her, he had been changed by a shocking experience. Perhaps together they could continue to change for the better. She clung to her love for Freddie, averting her eyes from legs, wild, naked, cavorting, wishing her boyfriend would come out of the warehouse. <clears throat> I was holding that coffin for so long. You know, it's fascinating. It's so interesting to read. This is what's interesting is this is John Russo's sort of, this is his perception of what punk is as a 40 something year old man. That's what this is. 
and he's been charged with writing about punk rockers, but really he's writing from the perspective of uh, someone who is so far out of touch with uh, youth and adolescence and angst. And this is what you get as a result. All this stuff, the, the, the religious stuff, you know, um, uh, needing to be punished for getting naked and, you know, uh, talking about um, uh, people dying. I don't know. Chapter nine. Oh, Bert Wilson was fuming, but Freddie hardly cared. He was too sick and exhausted. Bert was in plaid Bermuda shorts, a yellow windbreaker, and a floppy golfer's hat. Just picture that for a second compared to how he is in the movie. A floppy golfer's hat, a yellow windbreaker, and Bermuda shorts. His freckled face turned as red as his hair as he listened to Frank Nello lamely try to explain what had happened. You did what, Bert moaned? You opened it? You stupid morons? You idiots? You screwed up my warehouse and my barbecue. With an angry gesture, he pushed his heavy black frame glasses up his nose. What, like, like this. When Bert had first showed up, he had bitched about the impending rain and the employees who couldn't handle a tough situation without crying to the boss for help. But this was before Frank showed him the split dog writhing on the floor and took him to the padlock cooler to hear the screaming and the pounding. Now Freddie suspected a certain amount of Bert's cussing out of himself and Frank had to do with the boss's need to deny the veracity of the inhuman part of the situation. The whining of the split dog and the screaming and pounding of the corpse could still be heard through the office door. Well, Frank Nello said sheepishly, sheepishly smacking his desk top with the palm of his hand. What are we going to do? Bert started raving again. Do do. We're going to be sued by Daryl Chemical and be investigated by the government and become very, very famous and lose our business and go to jail. That's what we're going to do. As he raved, he paced all around the office, glowering and flinching with every scream of the cadaver in the cold room. On the other hand, if we do not wish for all those bad things to happen to us, we will destroy all the evidence and shut our mouths. Frank pounced upon the suggestion. Yes, that's it. Let's do that. Yes, I agree, said Bert. It's the only way. But before we commit ourselves to such a drastic course of action, I have just one itsy-bitsy question. Are you absolutely certain that the person screaming out there is a dead cadaver? Oh, open the door and find out, Frank challenged with a ghastly, unfunny grin. So it really, uh, open the door and uh, find out. Why don't you? <coughs> Bert wiped sweat off of his brow and wiped his hand on his Bermuda shorts. All right, all right. I believe you. I don't have to see it with my own eyes right now. I saw the split dog. At least I think I saw it. And if I'm not actually going nuts and dreaming all of this up, all right. He ran his hand through his wavy red hair, dark red from sweat. Well, if it is a reanimated body, we have to kill it. Freddie blurted out, how do you kill something that's already dead? Shut up. I'm thinking, said Bert, still pacing feverishly. Christ, Frank, what the hell? What the hell did it say in that National Enquirer article you showed me some years back? Some years ago? N nothing. Nothing about killing them. But in some of... The ghoul movies, they killed them by destroying the brain. 
it's interesting how he mentions that there was a National Enquirer article about it. I'd like to read that. The brain, right, said Bird. Well, what the hell do we have here that can destroy a brain? I mean, plenty of stuff. <clears throat> Frey said, well, what did doctors use to get into skulls? He couldn't help thinking that as much as his own skull ached, he might have to do an operation on himself to kill the pain. Doctors use surgical drills, said Frank. But as much as that frigging cadaver is jumping around, who's going to hold it down and drill it? Frank shuddered at the mere thought of entertaining such a notion of entering the cold room, let alone going into hand-to-hand combat, combat with a cadaver. Come on, said Bert Wilson. I got something that's just the ticket. He opened the office door and barged out. And since he was their boss, Frank and Freddie reluctantly followed him. Hanging on the wall outside of the office was a big red fire axe with a big pointy spike behind the blade. Bert seized it and handed it to, handed it to Frank. Frank, you take this. boy," Bert said. Apprehensively, Frank took hold of the axe, eyeing the spike and the sharp blade, wondering whether he could actually do a job with a weapon such as that or if it could somehow be turned against him. Now listen carefully, said Bert. Freddy, you're going to open the cold room door. Frank, when that cadaver comes out, you brain it with the axe. Well, what if it's still in the drawer? It may still be in the drawer, Frank pointed out. If it is, Freddy will have to pull the slide drawer open, and the rest of the plan stays the same. You brain it with the axe, Frank. Well, what are you going to do, Bert? I'm going to supervise. I didn't get us into this mess. We have to put that cadaver out of its misery. The screaming and pounding got louder and louder as they advanced towards the cold storage room. I imagine when I think about it, like we know what it looks like in the movie, but I imagine for some reason in the book, I think about that first cadaver that they revived in reanimator and like the screaming has to do with like what it must be like to be dead one moment. And then like, comprehend that you're no longer dead and that you're a cadaver and screaming in terror as a result of being in pain of being dead i don't know oh, this is the stuff that that chills me to the bone truly you you do better you got us into this you kid go over by the door sweat popped all over freddie's face like frank he felt terribly weak and he ached in every muscle and joint his stomach was so nauseous it felt like his insides were rotting, but he stationed himself by the freezer room door as Frank hefted the axe. Bert Wilson said, the combination on the padlock is 34 left, 9 right, and 12 left. He backed up close to a huge wooden packing crate that he could hide behind. Freddy got a grip on himself and spun the combination dial on the padlock. Clickety, 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 left, right, left. Then with great caution, he pulled the padlock open and lifted it out of the hasp. The screaming and the pounding from inside the cold storage room increased in intensity, and the door came ajar all by itself. Freddy jumped back, but nothing leapt out at him. It must still be in the drawer, said Frank. Thank God. He crossed himself for the umpteenth time today and transferred the axe to his left hand to do so. Christ, don't let go of that axe, yelled Bert, peeking from behind the crate. This is a bad time to take the Lord's name in vain, said Frank. Go on, go on, cried Bert. Go ahead in and do it, Freddy. Let's just let's just lock it up again, Freddy suggested. If we could get a hold of a grenade somewhere, 
we could just come back and toss it in there. Where the hell are we going to get a grenade? Bert says. Said Bert. Bert scoffed, I should say. This is a medical supply warehouse. For God's sakes, be brave, kid. Now is the time. You got to have some real guts. But he did all his talking from behind the packing crate. Now, that was a good line, John Russo. I'm not going to slide open the drawer unless you come in and help me, Freddie said, suddenly not giving a shit if he got fired for insubordination. His fear of his boss was submerged by his fear of the cadaver. The thing may not be in the drawer, he added. It may be lurking, just waiting for me to go into the cold room. Shit, let's stop bickering and get this over with, said Frank. My friggin' nerves can't take it anymore. But he had to think twice about the fact that the screaming and pounding from the cold room had stopped. Freddy could be right. The cadaver might be lurking. With a sudden summoning of courage, Frank used the axe handle to nudge open the freezer door. It squeaked as it slow, slowly sl- swung on its hinges. Freddy screamed, ah! The pounding started up again, more ferociously. To their great relief, the three men saw that it was the drawer rattling. The cadaver was still in the freezer compartment, struggling to get out. This makes it a lot easier, said Bert. All we have to do is slide. This makes it a lot easier, said Bert. All we have to do is slide the drawer open enough to smash its head with the axe. He came out from behind the packing crate. Go on in, you guys. I'll be right behind you. Mustering his last ounce of bravery, Freddy said to himself, I can go in there. I got my shit together. But his legs were so weak and his knees wobbled as he approached the waist-high drawer that held the cadaver. Bert stepped up beside him, his mouth hanging open as if he wanted to throw up. Frank took position squarely in front of the drawer with the axe raised up. Do it, for God's sakes, Frank urged. Don't think about it. Do it before I change my mind and shag ass. Love it. Shag ass. That goes on the T-shirt. Freddie and Bert each took a grip on the drawer and... uh, Freddie and Bert each took a grip on the drawer opposite sides and started pulling out. The screaming corpse stared up at them, hideous looking, with a ye- with yellow jaundiced skin and dry eyeballs. Ugh! The idea of yellow jaundiced skin with dried eyeballs. At first, just the head was visible. Then the dead, puckered hands got a clawing grip on the stainless steel top of the freezer compartment. Frank swung the axe as hard as he could in his weakened condition. The pick end of the axe cracked through the cadaver's forehead, but it didn't die. Instead, it screamed, kicking and clawing, bucking and thrashing like a demented man with quadruple the strength of ordinary sane mortals. Frank lost his balance and felt, still clutching the axe handle, staggering backwards, and because the pick was still embedded in the head of the cadaver, Frank's movement, momentum, pulled the drawer open and the cadaver rolled out. So he had the pickaxe in, still in the, he basically used the the stuck pickaxe to pull the cadaver out of the drawer, if, if I'm visually understanding this correctly. Um, winded, Frank let go of the drawer. Bert and Freddie jumped and yelled, the screaming dead man, writhing on the floor, got hold of the axe blade and pulled the spike out of his forehead, then hurled the axe aside, banging it off the steel freezer. Frank lay dazed where he had fallen. Bert and Freddie both got to their feet 
unfrozen at about the same time and bumped and wedged into each other in their effort to flee through the doorway. The dead man jumped out at the two men, knocking them both the rest of the way out of the cold storage room. Sounds like a Three Stooges sketch. And retaining a grip on Bert, choking and clawing him. The dead man started to sink his teeth into Bert's face, but Frank stumbled out of the cold storage room and got a chokehold on the corpse. Then Freddy recovered enough to help Frank, and Bert managed to roll free, yelling, It bit me! The son of a bitch bit me! He ran into the cold storage room and got the axe. By the time Frank and Freddy had the cadaver momentarily subdued, wrestled wrestled to the floor with its arms twisted up behind its back. It was snarling and snapping at them with its teeth. Bert yelled, hold its shoulders to the floor. Frank and Freddy did their best to pin the naked, struggling dead man on his back in one spot. Bert then took careful aim and swung the axe. Pow! Crunch! The pick end of the axe bit into the cadaver skull. I love that. The axe bit into the cadaver skull, taking a much deeper bite than before because of the damage already done and because Bert wasn't in as weakened a condition as Frank. The spike went all the way through the skull, nailing the cadaver to the wooden floor. It let out a tremendous howl and bucked and thrashed even more violently. No blood flowed from its wounds. Frank and Freddy hung on. With the axe pinned in its head, the cadaver squirmed around like a butterfly on a pin, screaming, Bert, I can't hold this much longer, Freddy cried. Bert ran to the warehouse shelf ripped open a cardboard box and, frank- and frantically unwrapped a surgeon saw for sawing bone. He yelled at Freddy and Frank, hang on tight. Frank and Freddy threw their entire weight over the leg, the length of the corpse's body, pressing its torso and legs as flat as possible and pinning its arms down. Bert got down on his knees and started sawing off the struggling thing's head, cutting into bloodless flesh and screeching neck bone. Finally, the body was separated from the head. The body relaxed and twitched. The tongue lolled from the side of the mouth. With great relief, Frank and Freddy stood up, and immediately the cadaver's body jumped up and ran off, leaving the head still pinned to the floor by the axe. Christ, Bert yelled. Jesus, protect us, Frank murmured. Oh, no, oh, no, oh, no, Freddy mumbled. The cadaver's body, like a headless chicken, ran right into a tier of shelving and fell down, but it got back up again and kept going, turning a corner. We gotta tackle it, cried Bert. The three men went after the headless corpse and leapt up, pummeling it to the floor and subduing it once again. Rope, rope, get the rope, Bert yelled. Frank let Freddy and Bert to Frank left Freddy and Bert to hold the corpse down while he found some coils of hemp. Quickly they tied up the bucking and thrashing dead body. Christ, why isn't it dying, said Frank. Bert said, you told us if we destroyed the brain, then that would be it. It works in the movies, Frank said. It ain't working now, said Bert. The movie was just fiction based on fact, Frank reminded. They examined the body still writhing, the head still nailed to the floor, snapping and snarling. So how do we kill it, Frank wondered out loud. The three men stared at each other, considering the implications. We'll have to destroy it completely, Bert said, until there's nothing left. Acid, Frank exclaimed. What kind of acid do you dissolve a body with? 
I think you need to talk to Mike, uh, Walt, and uh, Gustavo in Breaking Bad. Um, Bert told him, sulfuric acid should do it. Better. Better yet, aqua regia. Freddie said, what if it doesn't dissolve everything like the bones? Bert ran his fingers through his hair, thinking desperately. Cremation might be a better answer, he said finally. Cremation! That's the ticket, said Frank. Oh, well, when will this ever end? Fred- Freddie moaned. My girlfriend Tina's going to hate me if I ever see her again. She was supposed to meet me outside at eight. I hope she didn't wait. I hope she went home. Your girlfriend is the least of your worries, kid, Bert said Bert. But Tina was very much on Freddie's mind. He just wanted to be her. He, If he could find his way out of this nightmare. How the hell were they going to cremate this thing, said Frank. How the hell are we going to cremate this thing, said Frank. We don't even have an oven. Ernie Coltenbrunner, said Bert, the embalmer at the morgue next to the cemetery. He has a crematorium over there, Frank asked. Yep, a crematorium, that's good. But do you think he'll go along with it? He and I are poker buddies. But what the hell are you going to tell him, Bert? Can you trust him? I, I have to. I just have. I just hope he's at home. Or better yet, working late over there. Let's go to the office. I'll phone him in. Do I have to go to the crematorium? Asked Freddy. Yeah, kid, you're in this all the way, said Frank. Me and you, we got to stick together now, you know? He gave Freddie a wink as if they were both privy to some deep secret that didn't include Bert Wilson or anybody else. Are you still sick? Freddie asked. Yeah, sick as a dog. Sick, sick as a split dog. Frank chuckled, trying to make light of it. Me too, said Freddie. He considered just cutting the hell out of there, quitting his job, letting Frank and Bert take care of the creepy business at the crematorium. But there were two other factors that were preventing him from splitting one was that he was amazing one was that he was amazing himself proving himself by the amount of bravery he had exhibited so far he was getting back his self-respect and he didn't want to flush it down the drain what a (laughs) whatever and the second factor was that he sensed the kinship with frank nello that frank had tried to convey with a wink of his eye in a subtle metaphysical way that Freddie felt deep, felt deeply, but did not consciously understand. Ever since that gas squirted in their faces, he and Frank were bound together. Sufferers on the same journey, changing, evolving, facing the same dread. Ain't that the truth? Ain't that the truth? So that's chapters uh, eight and nine. Uh, not too many differences. Uh, Bert <clears throat> Bert's appearances is a ginormous difference. There's some change in dialogue. We get some more backstory. We get some backstory on Meat, aka Spider. We get a little backstory on Legs, and we get a little bit of backstory on Tina. And frankly, all three of their backstories are are variations of the same theme, but not in like a super deep way. Again, I think it ties back to Russo's like struggle to try and write like teenagers you know which is not easy you know when you're writing in the voice of another character you know if you are not one of said character like if you know you are if you are a gas station attendant who's writing a novel about a lawyer 
you have to write in the in the in your character's voice. And if your character's a lawyer, he's got to sound lawyerly. You know what I mean? And so I feel like that's something that that Russo struggles with. And he's not a, a punk rocker. And he's not a young guy. And he's it's it, it's hard for him to sort of find the voice of these characters, even though it's already spelled out for him in the screenplay very well, I might add. Um, my favorite, again, I thought it was last week or maybe I thought it was even the week before. It's a lot deeper in the book than I thought it was. Um, we are approaching absolutely one of the most terrifying moments in the book and movie, frankly, uh, to me. And it's, it's two words and we'll, when we get there, I'll talk more about it. It's two words that are said that just absolutely terrify the crap out of me. When, when I think about like who's saying them and the context of the story and yada, yada, yada. Um, so thank you for joining me. Uh, we will see you next week. Uh, for chapters 10 and 11. Until then, peace and hair grease.